assassins of grace and truth. That sounds about right. Had you known me long ago, that might have been your exact description of me. And as for hating Jesus, oh yeah, I did that too. There's no question about it. I hated him so much. We all did. I suppose I should introduce myself. My name is Simon, son of Nere. I was a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, during the time of Jesus' ministry. That's right, the Pharisees. You've heard about us. We're legends. I was one of them. Now, I know I'm not dressing the part today. I'm not dressed in the Bible outfit that you would have expected. I guess I kind of figured after 2,000 years, it was time for a change of threads. And I know that I bear a striking resemblance to your ridiculously good-looking youth pastor. (laughs) But trust me, I'm way, way, way more interesting to listen to than that guy. I mean, you get that guy up here and it's Snoozeville, right? Um, Jesus, full of grace and truth. I got to tell you, if I had a denarii for every time I heard somebody say that, well, actually, I'd have to borrow a couple quarters just to get a cup of coffee. You see, I never heard that. That was not my perception of him at all. Jesus was public enemy number one for us. We could not stand the guy. Did not like at all. We hated what he stood for, what he said, what he represented, the way he flaunted our authority and our traditions, and, and, and the way he, he, he referred to God, referred to the Lord as Abba, Father. It was disgusting. And then, to make matters worse, we started to hear these whispers in the crowds, people starting to ask, is this the Messiah? Folks, it was a nightmare. For us as religious leaders, it was literally a nightmare. Only it was a nightmare that we woke up to every day instead of waking up from. And every day I woke up more frustrated, rolled out of bed more angry, more ready to do whatever it took to get rid of this guy called Jesus. I remember one night after a uh, kind of especially fruitless Sanhedrin meeting that we had arguing about Jesus and what to do with him. A couple of the members of the Sanhedrin, whom I actually trusted, and there weren't many of those, many that I got along with, but there were a few that I did, and two of them, Joseph and Mattathias, friends of mine, pulled me aside. Simon, we've got an idea. They pulled me outside, and we talked in the dark, cool of the night, and they filled me in on their plan. An attractive but lonely woman in town for the festival. A handsome, although slightly dense, blacksmith who had caught her eye. And a strong likelihood that some not-so-discreet marital infidelity could very well take place if the right circumstances were set into motion. And Of course, best of all, with all this, the opportunity to trap Jesus in a lose-lose situation 
if everything went according to plan. It was perfect. <laughs> it was foolproof. I could barely sleep that night as I anticipated the dethroning of this false Messiah that had captured so many people's hearts. I couldn't wait. I, I practically willed the sun to come up that next morning. I watched it come up over the east, got out of bed, and I headed to the spot that Joseph had said we would be looking for. Sure enough, we looked in the house, and there they were, the two of them, lying in that bed together, completely asleep. Uh, quickly, I, I rushed Mattathias off and told him, wake the others, go get a group, right? Oh, and, and teachers, make sure to get teachers. He said, what? Teachers, teachers of the law, we're really going to need, we're going to want those guys there too, right? As, as he ran off, I, I turned and I looked inside the window one more time and I gazed at this prey <laughs> laying before, before us. I didn't know this woman, never seen her before, didn't know her story, didn't know what kind of life she had back at home, didn't know if she had children, anything back waiting for her. Strangely, I didn't care. To be honest, I was completely indifferent to her story, to who she was, to what mattered with her. I didn't care. I, I saw her as a prize at that moment and nothing more. She was a killer hand, an unbeatable hand in a high-stakes poker game. That's all she was to me. Joseph and, and Mattathias shortly after came back with the group, the group of religious leaders of Pharisees and some teachers of the law. And right then, sprang into action, right? Burst into the room. On your feet, you adulterous snakes. Get out of bed, you licentious children of the devil. They, they hopped out of bed, you know, like they were on fire, pleading with us, begging us not to hurt them. Not to, not to take them anywhere. I, I, I reached down and found the undergarment of the woman and threw it in her face and said, put this on, you're coming with us. She had barely even gotten the, the garment over her head and Joseph grabbed her arm and took, dragged her outside. Am I doing that? Grabbed her, threw her outside into the arms of the other religious leaders. She kept crying, begging, asking us, to stop. She kept talking about how she just couldn't do this. She, she was sorry. Please forgive her. She had a son at home. All these sorts of things. To be honest, we weren't a real receptive audience. The next step was pretty easy. Find Jesus. We knew where he usually was at this time, teaching in the, in the temple courts. We were right. He was there. We headed that way. He had an unusually large crowd that morning. And I thought, all the bigger to see you go down, big boy. We were making quite a ruckus approaching the group. And sure enough, by the time we got there, his preaching had grounded to a halt. We broke through the circle, and the two men that dragged, dragged the woman threw her down into the ground, right in front of Jesus. And she, she basically fell to the ground in kind of a lump of disheveled hair, tattered, torn garments and tears. Jesus took a look at me, took a look at the men, took a look at this woman, and immediately stared at the ground. 
I walked over after a few moments. Is it this? Okay. Sorry, guys. How's that? I walked over after a few moments, tried to make sure it was a dramatic pause before I did so, and I walked over, grabbed her by the arm, there in the middle of the circle, picked her up, said, on your feet. Face this group. It was getting pretty warm at that point, but her, she was trembling uncontrollably at that point, and she could not look up. Frankly, given that group around her, with all the staring, gawking, whispering, pointing, I didn't really blame her. I fixed my eyes on Jesus finally, and I said, teacher, staring him down as best as I could, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now, the law of Moses says to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? Someone in the crowd gasped quietly. <gasps> I even heard, I think, one of his disciples, that guy who never seemed to be able to shut up, I heard that guy turn to one of the other disciples and say, oh no. Jesus glanced kind of out of the corner of his eye, and then he did something that I was not expecting. He stooped. He bent down, and he just started writing in the sand. Didn't say a word, didn't say a, a single peep, just bent down, started drawing in the sand. Kind of took me back, and took a, the rest of us back too. We didn't know what to do. Some of the Pharisees finally, after a few minutes, started, come on, Jesus, what's your answer? What do you say, man of God? What's the way, how do you respond? What are you going to do here? But Jesus remained silent didn't even look up, just kept writing in the sand. It was at this moment that I actually thought we'd won. I actually thought, we've got him. <laughs> we did it. We silenced the great preacher, right? We beat him. He, was, he had no way out at this point. If he went with the route of saying, okay, yeah, I guess we should stone her, do you know what that would have done to his street cred? All the work he had done to show himself merciful and forgiving and to talk about a loving God, his, his followers would have left him so fast his head would have been spinning. And there would be the added bonus of him condoning the stoning of this woman being against Roman law, and we could turn him into the Romans. They didn't allow us to execute capital punishment. We could have turned him in. Of course, if he also went the other route, and said, no stoning. There'll be no stoning. Then we had it straight from the horse's mouth, right? This guy was admitting that apparently anybody can just choose to take, give and take with Moses' law. They can just choose to, to follow it when they want, when it's convenient, and, and not follow it when it's convenient. And no Messiah would do that. No man of God would teach that way or, or behave in that way. We had him. The jeering and, and heckling of Jesus continued the longer he sat there quietly. And it get, began to get louder. And it began to get more nasty. And I exchanged a quick kind of prideful grin with Joseph and Mattathias. 
And right as I filled my lungs with air to pronounce our victory and to, to, to slam Jesus and chase him away with my words, he suddenly stood up. Start where he was. He stood up and he stared right at me. Just stared at me with these eyes that were intense. And he spoke with an intense, a quiet intensity that I had, I had never seen before. It made my knees buckle. Uh, he, he said something very simple. He looked at me and he said, all right, the sinless one among you goes first. Throw the stone. <laughs> Throws the stone on the ground. The words hung in the air for what seemed like an eternity. I sat there trying to figure out what to say. What do I, what retort, what, what response can I give him to, to, to take back and, and to give it back as, as good as he just gave it to us? I had nothing. I had nothing. The more I thought about what he just said, the more the truth of his simple statement came in, the more silent I became. It was like my, my brain had gone haywire. I had, I had fried my circuits. I couldn't think of a thing. And apparently no one could either. No one else could either. You could probably guess what happened next. After a few awkward moments, you began to hear shuffling. Guys dropping their rocks on the ground. Boom, 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 and walking away. The oldest guys first, ironically, always knew the best what, what to do. They walked away first, followed by the young guys. Eventually, I was the last one standing there. And I glanced at the woman, this woman who moments before had been my, my prize, my, my trophy. And suddenly, she wasn't looking down. She was looking up. Her head was up, and she was staring right at Jesus. And I could see it in her face. It was like the first time she had really felt true love. It was the first time she'd ever experienced such grace, such incredible mercy. And she couldn't take her eyes off Jesus. I looked at Jesus too, but I didn't feel the same things she was feeling. I felt anger and frustration, but even more than that, I felt fear. I felt condemnation. I felt a realization, maybe for the first time, of who I was and how ugly I was. You see, what I realized was that at that moment, my hatred for Jesus, my anger towards him, my, my murderous rage towards him, and, and my feelings of complete uncaringness for this woman, complete disregard for, for who she was, had made me just as immoral as her acts, had made me just as guilty before God as this woman had in adultery. And what was amazing was, as I walked away, after being pummeled by the truth, I looked up one last time in Jesus' eyes, and you know what I saw? I saw grace too. I saw that even though he had seen the mess that I had in my heart, even though he saw all that, even though he recognized my anger and my jealousy and my rage and my guilt and all these things, I saw it in his eyes. 
he was telling me, yeah, and I want to heal you too. I want to forgive you too. And I'll never forget that look. I love this story because I think it so adequately conveys what John communicates at the beginning of his gospel. The idea of Jesus Christ being full of grace and truth. It's there in John 1.14. It says it again in 17. That grace and truth were the hallmark, were the, were the, the things that set apart Jesus. And RBC, as I thought about what to share in this last sermon of mine before we head off, I, I, I felt like the Lord was, was leading me to, to just go to this passage and to go to this idea of, of grace and truth and of Jesus Christ, our model, our example, being a man who was full of grace and truth. I thought, I struggled with, why did John use those two words to, to signify, to, to sum up who Jesus was? It's a challenging thought because I think what it does is it summarizes all of the idea of what Jesus came to do. He came to bring the truth, to make us understand who we are. To, to hold up the mirror and show us the truth about our condition. And he also came just as much to show that despite that, God wanted us back. God loved us, wanted to be reconciled with us. And I think, folks, that if I could exhort you or encourage you with something, it would be this idea that as we're called to be like Christ, I would want to ask you, where do you stand in regards to being full of grace and truth. I, I, I know that, you know, we tend to, I think of it, I, I think before this sermon especially, I tended to think of it in terms of walking a balance. And sometimes I'm gracious, you know, and sometimes I need to give the truth and I kind of, you know, balance between the two as best I can like a seesaw. But the more I thought about this, the more I thought, I don't think that's what John is describing at all, that Jesus just had a balance. I see it more like Jesus had two tanks, a grace tank and a truth tank, and they were full. They were capped off to the max at all times. He was constantly pulling from those tanks and uh, an outflow of grace, an outflow of truth at all times. And it makes me wonder if we're not built the same way. It makes me wonder if we're not built with those same two tanks. And so the question becomes, what's the, what's the condition of your tanks? What does the gauge read in your life when it comes to grace? Extending grace to people. What does the gauge read when it comes to being about truth, about looking for it and telling it when you get it? What's your gauge? How do you read? Obviously, the idea here and the challenge is, is that if we want to be like Christ, we strive to, to make grace and truth be what we pursue. And we pursue these things in, in, in our character and in our, in our hearts and in our minds. We pursue being people who are full of grace and truth. It's a challenging idea. Uh, it's simple, and yet I think extremely important. And I guess I just really believe that, that uh, I was called to challenge us this morning to this idea, to ask ourselves, are we pursuing grace? Are we pursuing truth? Are we making those two parts of us what, we, what we're about, what we're after? Are they showing up 
in our interactions with people? Are they showing up in our daily lives? Pursue grace. Pursue truth. Make it your goal to be like Christ and be full of both. Let me close this. Father, I just thank you so much for the example of Christ. Lord, I thank you that uh, we see in him just the, the, the best example possible. Uh, and though we can't make it, we can't reach that example, Lord, we can never be as perfect as he was. Lord, I know that, that you call us to this same idea, to be people of grace, to extend it to others, to be people of truth, to, to seek it out and to share it, um, and to not back down when we know it, Lord. And uh, I just pray that you would help us to take this to heart. I pray that you'd help us to be people who, who um, live this out both as individuals and as a church, Lord. May this be the, the hallmark of our lives. May this be something that we be become known for in this valley. Lord, make us full of your grace and of your truth. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.